Hi, everyone. I think um, we can go ahead and get started now. I know some people are still filing in, but the commissioner has to catch a plane, so we Don't have to get them out of here. That's, that, that, that word is verboten. I don't get to call you commissioner? No. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a hard habit to break. Yeah. We'll see if I can do it. Um, I'm Morgan Smith. I'm a reporter at the Texas Tribune, and we're really happy to welcome you here today to our uh, second annual Texas Tribune Festival. Um, looks like we got a pretty good crowd out there. Uh, Ted Cruz and Julian Castro didn't steal too much of our thunder here. It's okay. um, and so we're, we're kicking off today. This is the education track. Um, with an interview with the uh, newly retired Texas Education Agency Commissioner Robert Scott. Um, we're going to talk up here for about 45 minutes, and then um, the last 15 minutes we'll reserve um, for the best part, questions from you guys. So um, please have them ready. Um, but before we get started, I'm supposed to make sure that you guys know a couple of things. Um, there's lunch on the South Lawn. And at the end of the day, there will be a party at Schultz's Beer Garden starting at 5 p.m. Um, also, uh, do us a favor up here and turn off your cell phones, um, unless you want to put them on silent and tweet about the interview. Um, the hashtag is TribuneFest. And also, throughout the day, if you um, take pictures at the festival and put them up on Instagram, and use that same hashtag, they'll be in a slideshow at uh, Schultz's Beer Garden for everybody to see. So, um, and if what I just said makes no sense to you, just don't worry about it. Um, so um, let's just go ahead and get started. Um, Robert Scott stepped down from the Texas Education Agency, which oversees the, state, the state's 1,200 charter and public schools um, in July. Um, Governor Perry appointed him to the post in 2007, and since then he's been the public face of the agency as Texas has been at the center of um, a number of national conversations about education, um, whether that's been uh, defending its decision to reject the Obama administration's race to the top initiative, uh, navigating a media circus over controversial changes um, to science and social studies curriculum, um, or uh, trading barbs with Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan over the quality of the, school, of the state schools. Um, but the last six months in office, um, Commissioner Scott continued the trend. It's dead. It's dead. Okay, we're back. <laughs> um, the last six months in office, Commissioner Scott continued in a slightly different role. Um, he fueled a national dialogue about standardized testing when in a January speech to 4,000 school administrators, he said that Texas needed to re-examine the way it uses student assessments to hold schools and students accountable. He said that student testing in the state had become a perversion of its original intent and that he looked forward to reeling it back in the future. And while he said that testing had its place in keeping schools accountable, he called for a system that measured other days in a school's life besides testing day. Um, some of um, Commissioner Scott's other priorities throughout his time at the agency, um, during which he also led the state 
in a widely praised move to take in 46,000 students from Louisiana and Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, um, have been improved early childhood education and college readiness, charter school innovation, incentive, incentive awards for teachers, and career and technology education. A graduate of the University of Texas School of Law, he is now um, of counsel at a legal and government affairs firm in Austin. Um, so let's start out with that, uh, with that speech in January. Um, this is an annual event. You've, I, I think, spoken there every year that you've been commissioner. And, and usually it's the kind of thing where you get up with a PowerPoint and um, start laying out a lot of different figures like AP participation rates, NAEP scores, graduation statistics. Um, but this past year, it was, it was a little bit different. Um, and you really got into some of this, the struggles that you've had um, as commissioner, um, which you, you described your time as, as four and a half years of, of being in fight mode. Um, and while your, your comments generated a lot of praise, they also got some backlash from people who, who interpreted them to say that you know, this was a call to, to soften standards for schools. Do you, um, do you have any regrets about what you said that day? No, I, I think that, um, I don't know if I would have used a different terminology, but um, I think it got people's attention. And I think that the backlash you, you've referred to is, is very unhealthy. You know, I was simply calling for a dialogue. And I think the sad thing is that the day that we cannot have an open and honest dialogue about the policies in the state um, is, is really unfortunate. Um, I've been a two-decade proponent of our assessment accountability systems. I still stand behind it. I think it has its place. But I know as a human being that I am fallible, and I set the cut score. And I know that a system as big as ours is fallible. And it's not just Texas. Look what happened in Florida recently. They set their cut score. 27% of the kids passed the test. They had an emergency meeting in the middle of the night, changed the cut score, and lo and behold, 80% passed the next day. You know, where's the confidence in that type of system if that's the, the type of adjustment that you have to make? Same thing happened in Massachusetts years ago. And believe it or not, the same thing happened in Texas back in the 90s. Nothing sinister going on. It was just a shift from toss to tax. But the test was much more difficult. The results came in, and they were far askew of what, we, what the agency thought would happen. And subtle changes were made. Um, so it's, it, it, it happens all the time. I know the system is fallible. And so when I go home and lay my head on the pillow at night and I know that I set the cut score, I have to ask myself, did I get it right? Did I get it wrong? I have great faith in the assessment staff at TEA, and they have wonderful data, and they have a great history of this. But ultimately, it's a human decision. And the question I have is whether that human decision for this essentially a research tool should be used for high stakes for students. Well, how do we design a system that takes into account that this fallibility that you describe? I mean, what, what does a system like that look like? Well, I think you can continue to use testing. But uh, as I said, I, I questioned the validity of the 15% for the grading requirement. I think a lot of people question that. I question the uh, four-year bar, the, uh, bar on attending a four-year institution if you didn't pass English 3 and Algebra 2 at a certain level. Because I, you know, I, I, my joke is, you know, the phone's going to ring in Mac Brown's office in a few years, and he's going to go, what, the whole recruiting class? We, we lost the whole recruiting class. Oh, the punter. The punter took Algebra 2. We can keep the punter. So, um, you know, and I look at it from a fine art standpoint of the father of two fine art students. If, if a student is a wonderful fine art student, has a full-ride scholarship to a four-year institution, but just chose to take a statistics class rather than simply Algebra 2, they're barred from attending a four-year institution. 
And, you know, I'm an attorney, and it took me an hour to read that statute. And another attorney who's here with me, we sat down and it took us an hour. And we still didn't believe it, so we brought in a third attorney who had to confirm to us that that's what the statute actually said. So hopefully we can see some changes there before that actually affects kids. So what you're describing is um, changes to the way the assessment affects um, graduation requirements, things like that. Things like that, but I also think that we need to be looking beyond, and that's why I was a proponent of the Visioning Institute bill, Senate Bill 1557. I'm very happy the agency just announced 23 school districts. That'll be part of that pilot. So let's see what else is out there. Let's see if we can do this system in a better way. And like I said at, at midwinter, if we can do sampling like the NAEP, hey, maybe we can save some money in the process. Um, and make a testing system that's equally as valid because people don't question the validity of NAEP. It's a, a, a statistical sample that is representative of the population and provides you uh, a good indicator. So let's just see. Let's just have a dialogue. Maybe we'll, we won't wind up with something different, but we shouldn't foreclose the opportunity to look at other options. And let's talk a little bit more about um, Senate Bill 1557. This is um, a, a bill that was passed that allows um, a consortium of, of high-performing districts to try out different innovative uh, practices. Talk a little bit more about what might come out of that. Well, as I mentioned, you've got districts who, who came to me and said, look, our kids are capable of a heck of a lot more than the tax test or the star test requires of them. But our teachers are telling us, we're only held accountable for here. Our kids are capable of doing this, but we're only focusing on this. And so... I questioned a system that would limit the potential of a student um, because of an assessment accountability system. So hopefully we'll see some things that, that might allow us to stretch our students beyond that. And, and, and I'll get back to that. Now, I guess I should clarify what I was talking about back in, in, in January, too. You know, when I said the, the dreaded P word, the perversion, you know, I was addressing the idea of teaching to the test. And, and I would challenge any of those who, who called me out on it to tell me if they really believe that when we started this process back in the, the early 90s, that we meant not focusing on the curriculum. Because I was in all those meetings, and the whole purpose that we were talking about was driving focus on the curriculum, not just the test. Now, seasoned educators at the time warned us, guess what's going to happen? Eventually, they're just going to focus on the test. And we said, no, 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 we'll put safeguards in place. We put a provision in Chapter 39 that said you can't do practice testing more than 10% of instructional days. So we thought we had put some stuff in place to, to help defend against that. But in many cases, it didn't happen. Well, right now we're, as you know, we're in the midst of um, transitioning to a new student assessment system, the, the STAR exams um, involving the end of course. And um, a lot of people say that the problems that we had in the past with teaching to the test, with drill and kill, that that's not going to happen with the STAR exams, that this is, this is a new day and we need to allow this system to work before we start making changes to plans that were put in place a, a while ago to, for this transition? You know, I would certainly hope that the new assessment system leads us to that. And I think, look, as I said, I think end-of-course exams are a good thing. Testing a child at the end of the course. Now, whether or not you have so, as many of them or the requirements for admission to college are the same, I think that's fair for debate. Um, and I'd like to see us not focus on the test, but, but what I saw this year in the transition was that the agency put out a great deal of information, but it was never enough. And, and the sense that I got was the only thing that would really make people happy and understand it was if I was able to release a test um, so that they would have something to look at and know exactly what it was going to be, but we couldn't do that, obviously, in the transition. So 
Um, I think that, that the tendency to focus on the test will still be there. I hope that the new system will help um, quench that a little bit. Because, of course, there's um, a coalition of several groups that are influential in the legislature, the Texas Association of Business, the conservative think tank, uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and the Governor's Texas Business Leadership Council. Um, they have gotten together and said that they, are going, they would vigorously oppose any additional funding restoring the cuts that were made last session um, to public education unless they're certain that this, this current, the current transition, what we established was going to be the star regime, um, was maintained. So, I mean, are they wrong in, in having this position? Well, I mean, look, people stake out positions in the Capitol all the time. And, you know, it, it used to be that we, you would stake out your position and, you know, we might even call each other some bad names. But in the end of the day, we'd go and sit down and we'd solve problems and we'd come to a compromise. I hope we haven't gotten past the point where we can't do that again. That, you know, yeah, you stake out your position, I'll stake out my position. Hey, here's a couple things we can work on together. But at the end of the day, let's come together and solve the problems of the state of Texas. I hope we're not past that point. Um, so we'll see if that line in the sand is something that, that is an absolute and that, that if we just can't, you know, agree to sit down and try to come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. That's the way Texans usually work. Um, let's talk about the, the transition a little bit more. Um, you, brought, you said that TEA has put out you know, a lot of information, but you felt like it could never really be enough. Um, and it seems you, the issue of testing and assessment came up during the legislature. Um, I think the House voted at one point, which I think most people understood was a symbolic gesture, but they voted like 148 to 2 to do away with all testing. Um, but I feel like the general public, parents didn't really get wrapped up in um, a lot of the momentum, the anxiety that was out there about tests until they actually saw the, the new school year started, they saw what was happening in the classroom. Um, are there things that could have been done differently that could have alleviated some of the anxiety that could have um, just made the transition a little bit more smoothly on the part of TEA? Oh, I, I think that you can always look back and say, gosh, we sh- maybe should have had another forum, another seminar, or put another web page up. But we did a lot of that. And it, it's funny, it, it, it almost happens like this every time. And I remember being in the commissioner's office uh, the week before the STAR exam was, was administered, and we had people calling teachers. What the heck is this STAR thing? We've never heard of it before. And, and I would suggest to you that when the uh, Common Core National Assessments roll out in, what, 2014, there's going to be people all over this country going, what in the heck is this? Because in, in a country as, this, as diverse and large as ours and a state as large and diverse as ours, um, not everybody gets the memo. And, um, you know, eventually it's just going to have to happen and someone's going to wait say, no one told me about this. Um, that's just kind of the, the way it happens. But um, I, I think the agency does a good job of trying to get materials out there, try to have uh, information. And, and I think one of the strengths that the state has is our regional service centers in being able to disseminate information and provide training. And I know there's folks that, are, uh, that have the service centers on their target list, but um, having been an administrator and had to run the system for as long as I did, I know that they're essential to the operations of, of our school districts and the agency in getting its, its uh, mission accomplished. And all of those bills that the legislature passes don't magically just get implemented in the districts because a memo comes out of the commissioner's office. It takes training, it takes implementation, it takes information, it takes all of those things that we do from the state, the regional, down to the district and campus level. 
So I hope we can continue th- that, uh, that level of service. So the, the service centers aren't just needless bureaucracy in the public education system, in, in your view? I have never seen them in that way, and I see them as essential. I see them as um, our, our way to respond to crisis. You mentioned Hurricane Katrina. One of the first things I did was contact you know, Region 4 and 5 and say, we need you guys on the ground. I, I'm going to send you some emergency aid that we have that we've got set aside for the emergency purposes. And they were the ones out there providing um, extra pay for overtime bus drivers to, to move people and move food and move supplies and open schools as shelters. They were our mechanism to implement all of that. Not just the legislation, but the crises that the state has. We use service centers. When a charter school uh, suddenly shuts its doors and closes up shop and children are left out in the street and we need to go get their education records, we call the service center. So it's not just a, a needless bureaucracy that people say. It's, it's an essential function uh, in a state this large to have people out there that you can call on rather than just try to put people on a plane and go out into a, a school district and effect change. And, and one of the things that the service centers do is... Um in a lot of cases, they help districts with um, providing the, the benchmark exams that, um, that, that teachers give students throughout the year to see where they're falling in preparation for the, the big state standardized tests. Um, and some people, when you are in a conversation about um, student assessment, they'll say, well, you know, state law we only mandates one test. It's really these, these benchmark exams that are getting parents upset. It's not, it's not the state test. Um, do you think that with the transition to STAR, with these end-of-course exams that are supposed to be more aligned to what's being taught in the classroom that year, that school districts are going to be comfortable enough to uh, move away from, from the, benchmark, the benchmarking exams that, that people are talking about? I think that that practice has become somewhat ingrained in many cases, and, and in many cases, um, you look around the country at the national reform movement, and it's not only ingrained, it's encouraged. I mean, and overly encouraged. And, you know, really, that's what sparked this debate. It was uh, a member of the State Board of Education who's an educator said, all my district is doing is benchmark testing. And that's when I popped off with the dreaded P word. I said, that's not what we meant. We meant the, the curriculum. And I had a mother who, who came up to me afterwards and, and said, my kids at my school are doing the same thing. It's just benchmark after benchmark after benchmark. And I asked her, I said, what, kid, what school did your kid go to? And it was the school that's 30 seconds from my house. Now, I know the neighborhood that I live in, and I know the kids in the neighborhood that I live in, and I'm pretty sure those kids come to school ready to learn. And matter of fact, there, there was one of the schools in the newspaper, the Statesman, that was so overly supported by parents, there's a civil rights group that wants to recapture the money that the parents contribute and distribute it to other schools because that's how much that school is supported. So I know that those kids come to school ready to learn, and I know that that drill and kill probably is not, or teaching to the test, is probably not going to be an effective exercise for those kids, but that parent was telling me that that was going on at that school. So if it's happening there and it's happening in Dallas, that's what I think we ought to address. And, and, and you know, honestly, in my, the next remarks I made at Midwinter was a, I was talking about the teaching commission because you almost use, overuse benchmarking when you are either trying to script a teacher or cover, cover a gap of knowledge or a gap of skills. You know, so you're either using it to limit what a teacher can do in some cases or overcome uh, gaps in, in teacher performance. And so 
I think that there's management strategies that need to be looked at there and figure out what exactly you're doing with the benchmark. It's not that it's an unhealthy exercise. It's just when you overdo it and overdo it, 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 I think it just it, it drives people crazy. It, but if it is so ingrained um, in you know the everyday life of a school district, how how do we move away from it? What can we do to to change that? Well, I think it all comes down to training, professional development. You know, when I, I testified for the legislature, I had another memorable quote: "The heart and lungs thing." Yes. When the legislature asked me what I was talking about, you know, what I put back, I said, "It's like asking a guy if he wants on an operating table if he wants his heart or his lungs back." And when I said that, what I was thinking inside my head was, you know, the heart of the system was the foundation school program, the basic support of funding for our schools. The lungs, in my mind, were the support mechanisms that the state funds, the professional development and the training and the instructional materials. That was that $1.4 billion that was part of the other cuts. I was fighting to keep a portion of that because I felt it was very important to keep providing that training to teachers. And I think if you're ever going to get away from you know, overkill and benchmarking, it's really about the quality of educators, the, the materials that they have, the training that you are able to provide throughout the state and through your service centers that can help you overcome that. And if I, were to, if I were to be speaking to the legislature next time, I would be saying, look, if you really want to move away from this scripted approach, you need, you need some high-quality training. It, it begins in the colleges of education and the teacher prep programs and continues throughout their career in terms of, of professional support and professional development. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the budget cuts a little bit. Um, it, what was finally settled on was not um, what was proposed at the beginning of the session. It was several billion dollars less. Um, so it, it seems like maybe you got some of some of the heart, some of the lungs back. Uh, but, not so much, though. I think maybe we're <laughs> operating on one lung. Yeah, maybe one lung. Um, but, um, I mean, how have you seen the budget cuts affect school districts? And, um, you know, is, is, are they sustainable? Or, you know, do they need to be restored during, during the legislative session? Well, when you attempt to paint with the broad brush in a state as large and diverse as Texas, you are always wrong. In many cases, those cuts really hurt districts. In many cases, the districts had a fund balance. I talked to superintendents. They said, you know, we're going to be okay. Based on a 2006 snapshot of revenue, some districts are okay, some are not. Um, You know, and I, I think some districts took the opportunity to say, you know what, politically we probably couldn't have made these decisions before, to, to trim some programs here or make some personnel decisions that probably weren't politically popular, but they were able to do it. In many cases, um, you know, the districts are, are truly circling the drain, as we, as we say. Um, but that's also what kind of caused me to take a step back and look at our accountability system. And I, I mentioned a couple of, of examples at Midwinter, too. Little bitty West Texas school district, the memo comes in, we need to order closure of the school district. You know, the school district was broke. It was a recognized school district. Facilities were fine, teachers were fine, kids were fine. I flew out there, I saw absolutely nothing wrong with the school district other than they were broke. So we gave them an opportunity to work with their service center and neighboring school district to do some shared services arrangements. And here they are three years later, they've got a fund balance. They got, a, I think, a million dollar fund balance or something like that. They've gotten several, like nine different grants and because they are West Texas dark sky territory, they are now part of a NASA program where the students are studying the stars at night. And you're talking so, about uh, Marathon, Marathon, Marathon ISD. ISD. Yeah. yeah, and so it, it is a wonderful example of the accountability system, the long knives coming out, and us stepping back going, wait a minute, maybe we ought to do something a little bit different. Same thing with Premont. You know, Premont and South Texas, as I said, they were not in as good shape. But, man, did you see the story of all the kids in Region 2 
having fundraisers and raised $65,000 to build them new science labs. And that's that story just a few weeks ago. They've remodeled all of their science labs, state-of-the-art. All their stations have iPads because the community came together. Now, that's an accountability system where the community comes together and rallies around, not forced to rally, but just comes together and says, we're going to help this district. Now, that's what I'm talking about. Maybe that's a better system. But of course, those are you know those are two two school districts, sure. and you know as commissioner, you can't be flying around to every school district to to check out what's going on. I mean, how do we what do we fix in the current system, or what kind of system do we devise that um, that kind of takes into account the wider variety without having to I guess have so much effort on the part of an individual commissioner or a greater community um, to to keep things moving along. Look, I'm not talking about getting rid of sanctions. I mean, I think sanctions are necessary, and I think that that when I see bad actors and I see people, you know, not serving children or harming children, I think the agency absolutely needs the ability to step in and order closure or a, a, a conservator or a management team in situations like that. What I saw in those instances where I think there needs to be some flexibility is perhaps challenging a school district and saying, okay, instead of the agency sending in the cavalry and, and, you know, and sending in its turnaround teams, maybe we need to challenge you to the list of things, and either you, you survive or not. You know, the agency has the ability now to order um, a school district to, uh, to acquire outside services. I think that may be a healthy thing. So rather than in, you know, inextricably link the agency to the school district, uh, maybe a better model is simply saying, here's your time frame, here's what we expect of you, um, get it done or not. Um, and I also think that, you know, I, I, I always thought the strength of the Texas system when we set our accountability standards is that we try to meet the kids where they are and then raise standards over time. If I were to get to change one thing in the law next session, I would say that needs to be in statute. That when you set the passing standard, you meet the children where they are and then you raise standards over time and you don't wind up with you know, the reformer du jour coming in and saying, I'm going to set an 80% standard on the cut score in year one like they did in Florida and upending the entire system or eroding the public trust in it. So I think that common sense things like that, um, gosh, we could have a policy discussion around common sense. You know, that reminds me of one of my favorite stories of David Anderson, the attorney at TEA, an exasperated legislator. You know, just can't we just legislate common sense? And David, being the soft-spoken guy that he is, leans in the microphone and says, not without extensive rulemaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, explain. I mean, explain a little bit more about what you mean meeting the kids where they are. I mean, what is? I mean, isn't that also just somebody no. else saying, "Okay, this is what the passing rate is going to be, and this is how we're going to make it so that that number of students passes." I mean, what does that mean? You can make it a little more scientific than that. <laughs> what you say is you have um, an equation score of where the students performed on the previous exam let's say, the tax-to-star transition. And we can equate what that score would be on the new test based on the level of difficulty. Because when you create a test, and most people don't know this, you create a test, you have a whole bunch of different testing questions. Some are more difficult than others. They have these things called Roche numbers, and they measure each question based on its level of difficulty from negative 2 to positive 2. And so you build a test with a, a, a bunch of items. Some are more difficult than others. And then when you create a new test, you can measure it against the old test in terms of the number of difficult questions versus the number of moderately difficult questions to the number of easy questions. So when you create that, you can tell pretty much, um, the writing thing caught us by surprise this year, and I can talk more about that later, pretty much where the students would fall under the new regime. So I would say that's the proper place to meet the students. Maybe challenge them a little bit in year one, 
but not set the standards so demoralizingly high that you, you uh, upset the system, you're upsetting parents, and you erode trust. I mean, I think that, that we've, we've done this for two decades in Texas, and that's the policy by which we have traditionally set the passing standard. Um, I think it's worked well for us, and I would hate to see us have a system where you, you just cause chaos and panic um, rather than a systemic approach. I mean, because I, I believe that is true education reform. You know, the, the idea that you, you implement standards, you dutifully align your curriculum standards to your, your professional development, your instructional materials, and then your assessment system, not the other way around. That's real reform. And I think some of these national movements, just to say it's testing, 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 tied to evaluation of the teacher, the principal, the superintendent, the school board. Heck, next year it'll be the parents, you know. Uh, after that it'll be the, the pet, you know. You know, and, you know, I asked you if you, you were going to ask me if I believed in Satan. <laughs> well, do you believe in Satan? I, I, and I, my response was going to be, I'm pretty sure he's an educational researcher at times. <laughs> Because I sent you a story last week, and you didn't comment on this, that someone actually performed a study that people perform better on standardized tests if they're sexually aroused. That was research that was done, probably with your tax dollars. And I read the story last week and was like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, that for crying out loud. So um, that kind of stuff that I see like that, and, and, and I, I just can sincerely hope that no one ever actually picks that up in part, as part of the reform movement. <laughs> um. <laughs> I caught you off guard with that one, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't really sure where that one was going. But, um, well, let's talk a little bit about um, the role of the agency, the role of, of the commissioner in the agency. We talked some about um, that role in the, um, in the process of closing school districts. Um, and, I mean, I think it's clear to most everybody that being commissioner is a balancing act. Um, you're caught between the school districts, the school administrators who are turning to you for guidance. You're caught between the legislature. You're caught between the governor who appointed you. Um, I mean, what, should, what is the proper role of the Texas Education Agency and the commissioner? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, by statute, the commissioner is the educational leader of the state. And I, I think that the agency has a, a significant role in the implementation of laws that the legislature passes and that, that federal law in making sure that our students operate efficiently, that we disseminate the information, that the agency is responsible for um, working with the State Board of Education to develop um, the curriculum standards. Um, but you, you also have a debate about the role of the agency. Uh, you know, back in the you know, 70s and 80s, you know, the agency you know, would go out, and the, the accountability system at the time essentially measured desks. Did you have the proper height of your desk? I mean, that was what they really looked at. And so we moved into this era of standards-based reform and assessment um, a, as a way to get away from that. And, and the funny thing is, um, you know, what, are the, what are the complaints today? Students are not prepared for college, right? Hear it all the time. If you go back into the late 1800s, the headline in every major daily newspaper, universities upset, students aren't prepared for college. You know, so we created the Carnegie Unit in 1906, and that was going to solve all of our problems. We created the Reading Initiative back in the 90s. If you teach children to read by third grade, everything else will take care of itself. Remember? Here we are again. Students still not prepared for college. So we created the college readiness standards. Align our curriculum standards to what educators in college really want. That has promise. 
Um, do I think it will solve all of these problems? No. But, but I think the agency's role is to dutifully administer that system. I think that it does need um, teeth, and I think, it, um, I think it should continue. I do not think it should be one guy on a phone, <laughs> as was uh, said on the House floor, although I, that will be my boardroom portrait. You know, each commissioner gets a portrait. It's going to be me and a phone. For those of you not familiar with, with the reference, um, during a debate on the House floor, a couple of, of lawmakers, it was during the budget debate, actually, got up and said that the Texas Education Agency should just be one guy and a phone. <laughs> so someone photoshopped a picture of me. I think it's actually on Cary Grant's body from a 1950s movie. I've seen movie. the picture. <laughs> yeah. And so photoshopped my face in front of this old 1950s rotary phone. And I said, that's my boardroom portrait. Just post it out there. I'm, I'm done. Well, so does the Texas Education Agency have enough teeth to do the job that it needs to do now? No. And it can operate. It can operate and it can function and it functions, uh, it can implement its mission, but in the event of crisis or if it had to do many, many more special accreditation investigations, I would fear that it would not have the resources to implement everything that it is expected to do. Because, you, you know, what you did last session was you didn't cut government, you cut the budget. You kept all the rules and laws and regulations and expectations, you just cut the funding. So you've given the agency, you didn't cut back the things you expected the agency to do, so it has to prioritize. Now, and I think it does a good job of prioritizing. It says, is this mission critical or not? But I guarantee you, going to the next legislative session, the legislature's not going to agree with their priorities. Why didn't you do X? Why didn't you do Y? Yeah, I saw a, a discussion about the student data system, and, and a legislator was bemoaning the fact that the new Texas student data system did not incorporate adult basic education data in the way that they thought. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, being happily out of the agency now, so you're basically your question is, why didn't you do something we didn't ask you to do with money we didn't appropriate for you? So, you know, because the agency essentially went out and raised all that money on their own. They went out and got Dell money, they got a federal grant, and they created a new data system um, because they felt like PEMS was antiquated. And in my conversation with Bill and Melinda Gates, and I had to explain to him that the PEAM system started on punch card technology, the look on Bill Gates' face was priceless when I told him that the data system that we used in public education in Texas began on punch card technology. And Scott Huckberg was sitting next to me, and he's like, yeah, he's right. <laughs> so, you so, know, you're we'll, so it sounds like resources is the primary limitation that you're saying here. Are there other things that... TEA needs the authority to do or um, well, blessing I, to do that it can't right now? Yeah, I, and I think the, the El Paso situation is a perfect example. And this is, you know, you have a situation where you, you have a complaint made about a situation in the school district. The agency investigates. It is given the information it is entitled to. It does not have subpoena power in that case. And then the FBI or another federal agency comes in, and once that FBI comes in, we're told, back off. Um, because this is a federal investigation, and the agency is certainly not going to want to get involved in, in messing up a federal investigation. But I think that you know, having to wait until that process is over or, or not having the ability to subpoena records hampers the agency's ability to understand completely what's going on in a situation like that. So you know, I'm not saying give them guns and badges, but <laughs> that may come up eventually. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about the next, the next legislative session. Um, there have been a lot of conversations happening out there about uh, public education policy. Um, you know, we've had a couple of interim hearings on um, 
the assessments. We've had a hearing on um, school choice, uh, private school vouchers. Uh, we've had you know a senator and lieutenant governor come out in support of of school choice legislation. Um, and of course, there's going to be a push to to try and restore some of the cuts. But I mean, among all of those. Um, and then we won't even mention the looming uh, school finance lawsuits because there's a panel on that um, right after this that you guys can all go to. But um, amid all of that, what I mean, what should be a priority for the legislature this session? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, making sure that you know. I, I don't know if you can go two by any without covering enrollment growth. Um, you know, for the first time since World War II, we didn't fund enrollment growth last session. I understood the budget. I understood exactly where they were. I went to them and said, I think I can, in my mind, I knew I could get back $6 billion of the $10 billion that was originally proposed. And that's really pretty much where they wound up. Um, I think looking at enrollment growth, I think looking at, um, number one, if you're going to give this test and you're going to make it such high stakes, there has to be interventions and supports for students who fail the test before they take the subsequent. Traditionally, what we have seen is on a subsequent administration of a test. Student fails the test, they retake it. 50% of the students pass on the subsequent administration. We're not seeing that this time. David and Anthony, Anthony and I were talking before. 80% failed the, failed the subsequent exam. 80%, 76 to 80% I'm hearing. There needs to be those supports. That's what I was talking about with the Student Success Initiative. You know, That was the deal that was made. Yes, we're going to hold you accountable. This is going to be used for promotion and high-stakes decisions. But on the other end... We're going to give you the support you need. We're going to provide tutorials. We're going to provide remediation and intervention, training for teachers. The lungs need to come back there. And that's what I was talking about when I was talking about the Student Success Initiative. I think that's essential. And I do believe also that you've added a whole new complexity with end-of-course exams. Like I said, I'm a a supporter of of end-of-course exams. They're fine. But you've added high stakes in high school in a way you never have before, and you ought to at least have a discussion about what supports and interventions you're going to have for the students in high school who fail that test. I have very good friends of mine who have ninth grade children this year and who experienced failure on the end of course exam. And I've got, uh, I've talked to a lot of moms whose parents, are, who are parents who are very upset. Um, should I give them the name? We've, uh, we've actually had several meetings with them and the passion of these women reminded us of a previous advocacy organization. So we've dubbed them Mothers Against Drunk Testing. <laughs> so get to know them because they're going to be a powerful force in the next legislative session. Um, getting calls from all over the state from moms who want to be affiliated with them. That's not their formal name, by the way, but maybe that's, we should that's say, just a kind maybe of a, we a, should, a nickname uh, that Todd uh, came up with and has now been repeated uh, Maybe we should say their, their formal name. I think you're referring to um, Texans advocating for meaningful student assessment. Did I get the acronym right? <laughs> Mothers Against Drunk Testing sounds much <laughs> Well, I noticed that you didn't say um, school choice reform in, in, in that list. How, wh- how do you feel about that? Look, school choice has, has been on the radar screen for how long now? Decades? Since, yeah, the mid-90s. And, and, they've, and they've tried that bill, and they've tried the sneaky bill, and they've tried the push through the bill. Okay, fine. Let's, let's assume for the sake of argument you pass a choice bill. Where's the capacity out there? Private school capacity is, what, 250,000, 300,000 kids? Tops. we got 5 million kids in public schools. So what happens? Either you've got to increase the capacity, so you're going to increase the demand, but you're not going to increase the cost. 
I've never seen that economic model. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, there is an argument for competition in the system. There's an argument for online learning for some kids. There's an argument for quality charter schools. Um, you know, I've been a proponent of, of, of those things. I, I don't see, you know, a choice bill as being a panacea for all students. I see, and I'll tell you, an agency that has to administer that program needs about 2,000 more people and guns and badges. <laughs> because the, 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 the folks that will open up and sign up a, uh, you know, a thousand kids and send the agency a bill and then be off in a non-extradition nation after they get that check, um, yeah, that's what you'll see if you don't do this right. I mean, okay, fine. For the sake of argument, if you do this and you have the votes, fine. But be thoughtful in what you're creating and be thoughtful about the foundation school program that you complain about the cost of because it could balloon. Just having virtual schools caused the foundation school program to tick up about $11 million one year. And the LBB was upset with me because we had a virtual school program that, well, you, when you get more kids and you bring them into the system and you educate them, it costs money. So if you do this, just know that there are consequences. Um, so that's, that's what I will caution the legislature. You know? So you don't see um, taxpayer savings in private school vouchers? You know, I've seen the models that show savings. You know, I don't, I don't know where those numbers come from, or you know, but I, you know, I know people that go to private schools, and I look at the the tuition costs of a Hockaday or you know, or a St. Stephen's or a Sidwell Friends, and you know, if you want that quality, you're not going to get any savings. You know, so we'll see what happens. Um. Okay, well, I think we can um, go ahead and open it up to questions from the audience now if um, anyone wants to come forward. I think we have two microphones set up here. Okay, ask your questions now because I have a hard stop. I've got to catch a flight, and so I'm like running out the door at 9.30 to catch a flight to St. Louis. David, now come on. <laughs> Commissioner, uh, would you, uh, since the last topic was choice, would you just address the choice that already exists for students and, and some of the numbers of kids who are taking advantage of choice within public schools? Well, you've, you've had the PEG list for how many years now? Since 95, 5, 95? What, less than 2,000 kids have availed themselves of that public school choice option. You have charter schools now, um, you know, across the state. And we've got a little, what, 100, over 100,000 kids in charter schools. You've got virtual schools now that you can, you can enroll online. Um, so there are existing choice options out there. And look, I've been a proponent of choice in, in many cases. You know, Whether or not a full-blown voucher thing can work or should it be piloted first? I mean, part of my argument against, you know, you talked about my, my argument against the Obama administration and Common Core was, shouldn't you pilot it first? Shouldn't you just see if it works first before you spring it on 46 states and millions and millions of school kids? And simply asking that question gets you, you know, I've, I've been called, what, a cheerleader for mediocrity, and I've been called uh, the, I don't know. That was, that was the best one, I think. Didn't you cheerleader for cheerleader, mediocrity? Yeah, cheerleader for mediocrity. Well, you know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't bring my mediocre pom-poms with me today. I left them at home. This question over here. Yeah.
Well, that's kind of what... Did everyone hear the question? So the question was not just look at the the test score, but the social-emotional aspect of a child before they're promoted to graduate. Now, this is one of those things you get into trouble with, because this is the argument that I had with Tony Wagner about 21st century skills. I said, if you try to institutionalize some of those skills, and I say the first time I'm going to go to call a principal and say, I'm shutting down your school, why? Your kids aren't curious enough, you know? (laughs) I wind up on the front page of a newspaper in court and I lose. So analyzing a student in that way is a, is a personal and human condition, not something that can be systematized. Uh, but one of the things that we did back in the 90s when we put the social promotion language in place is we said, okay, if the student didn't pass the test, then you convene a meeting of the teacher, the principal, and the parent to assess exactly what you're talking about. Maybe the student didn't have a good day, didn't, you know, has something going on in their life, and that can be promoted. So those type of discussions do happen in those placement review committees. And so I think that's the appropriate role for that type of thing, not to try to systematize it. Hi. Angela Farley, Dallas Regional Chamber. We're excited about what the 23 districts are going to be doing in piloting this new program, but that's going to take some time. Are there any specific modifications to the current assessment that you would recommend that we could look at um, as tweaks as we go into the legislative session? Thank you. Well, I think that that 15% grading requirement ought to, ought to have a look. And, and I think that the, the bar on four-year attendance, as I mentioned earlier, ought to have a look. I think anytime you have a testing system that's high stakes on the kid, it ought to, it ought to be really thoroughly examined. You know, I, I'm, I'm a believer in holding schools accountable. Uh, I'm a believer that, that that promotes efficiency to some degree. But it's become awful confusing when you have a state system and a federal system. And I actually applaud the agency for looking at the waiver. You know, I just, I, I, I worry that the Department of Education will start trying to add strings. But, hey, if the agency can get a waiver and make the system uh, more simple and conform the federal system to the state system so that it's not three days out of the year when you get hit, David, you know, when you get the AYP, you get your state accountability results, you get the PEG list. So it's, it's constantly responding to the gotcha thing. You know, I, and part, maybe that's the most important thing is, you know, we get out of the gotcha business, you know. And so do, using the test in that way, when I, as I said earlier, I know it's a fallible instrument because human beings are fallible. Um, you got to take a second look at that. And, you know, I, I think that it's, it's almost become, I think that, the, you know, when I look at the, the fervor of, the, of some of the reformers, it has almost become idol worship in, to some degree. And I look at it as a tool. Testing is a tool. But there are those who exalt it amongst all others as this thing that should be worshipped and, and used for everything. And I still look at it as a tool. So I, you know, put the spatula back in the drawer. It's a spatula, you know. That's what I said at midwinter. Hi, Stephen DeMann with Leadership for Educational Equity, and as a former 8th grade civics teacher in the Rio Grande Valley, I'd love to hear what policies do you think would be best for serving our low-income students in the state? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because many of the big policy levers that the state operates, you look at compensatory education, the billions of dollars, you know, Title I at the federal level, billions of dollars, are designed to negate the effects of poverty in our system. So, and if you look at the aggregate expenses in Texas public education, it's about $50 billion a year. So $50 billion a year, the major policy levers of which are designed to negate the effects of poverty in a trillion-dollar economy. 
think about it. Let's soak that in a little bit. So $50 billion, largely designed to negate the effects of poverty in a trillion-dollar economy. That's a heavy lift for that amount of money. You know, does the system do a decent job at it? You bet. You look at our NAEP scores. You, know, you look at where you disaggregate our African-American and Hispanic students um, tying Massachusetts for number one and number two in the nation consistently. So I see some positive things there, and I've, and I've tried every year, as Morgan said at midwinter, to, to give that speech with the PowerPoint, and, the, and we never get to read those stories in the newspaper. Um, but yeah, I think that many of the policy levers that we have have traditionally attempted to do that, um, you know, starting back in 1965 with the creation of Title I. Now, what I worry, and this is, a, this is the consistent theme on Capitol Hill, Federal funding was never designed to be general aid to education. It was designed to exude exactly what you talked about, to supplement what states could do, particularly to overcome the effects of poverty. With this new round of reforms, you've almost got it to the point where it has become general aid because it's so built around these reform models that it has not become supplemental to that function anymore. So I think that's a debate that Congress needs to have too. Tracy Weinberg, Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented. I know the school finance panel is next, but I'd appreciate your thoughts on data that Representative Hochberg and others have shown that schools that get more money from the state do better on test scores than those that don't. Yeah, you know, and there's, I mean, when you, you can cut that many other ways. There are some schools who spend less and do really well. Um, you know, I, money is relevant, but not completely dispositive. Um, you know, the story from the other day that showed that, par, pa, you know, the students at schools where the parents contributed and had fundraisers and bake sales, they did a heck of a lot better than the other schools. Well, okay, you know, there's a correlation there. And I worry about that a lot in educational research. You know, one of the first studies that the, the research centers came to me with was they wanted to do a study of mercury emissions and autism rates. And I said, well, let me try to explain something to you. I said, there might not be a causal relationship. For instance, Plano ISD has a wonderful special ed program. Parents move there because of that program. They seek it out. It has, so the incidence of students with autism might not have anything to do with mercury emissions in Plano other than the fact that Plano has a really good special ed program. So I worry about those causal connections. You know, it's, as an attorney, we call it the, the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. After the fact, therefore, because of the fact, always. And that gets so painted in education research all of the time. The study I mentioned earlier, students do better on standardized testing if they're sexually aroused. Really? Who came up with that research? You know, so I worry about that post hoc ergo proctor hoc fallacy being played out in research all the time. Just one more quick question. In terms of like the consortium that you mentioned, I think that's a great idea, but I look at the list of the schools there, and again, they all tend to be wealthy, high-revenue areas, so it kind of ties back with the previous question. How do we, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to them. I'm very much in favor of them moving away from the drill and kill, but how do we get that out to other districts who aren't, achieving at those high levels and don't have those levels of income. Yeah, you know, it certainly doesn't meet the, um, the social justice aspect. But at the end of Edgewood 3, there's a great um, article that was written by Tom Luce that talked about wanting to see some leaders so that everybody else could aspire to something. So maybe we could look at it that way and say, okay, for the time being, yes, these guys get to lead a little bit. But then maybe we get, to pull all, we get to lift all the boats up there. So maybe that's a good way to look at it. I haven't looked at the list, but I understood there was supposed to be some uh, diversity. Uh, 
And so I, you know, I, all I would say is that maybe if, if those folks can serve as guideposts, then we can lift the other boats up there too. Carol Fulbury, um, educational consultant. Um, thank you for your continued expertise and your vision. And I wanted to um, ask you a vision question about Texas in a couple years because I see the star end of course testing coming forward. I see new, new evaluations for teachers being another um, constant that we're going to have to work with. And I also see a pressure for Texas to become a part of the Common Core Standards since over 46 states now are been in that development of that process. And um, if that happens, or if it doesn't, how does Texas play in a couple years? I see a crash coming, but maybe you don't. So. Well, no, I mean, look, the, the, the decision to make the common, to not do the Common Core was a very easy decision. There are two entities in the state that can make that decision. The governor is not one of them, and the commissioner of education is not one of them. Either the state board of education or the legislature can make that decision. They're the only two entities who could, who could have signed Texas up for Common Core by changing the law, because the Texas law says the state board of education develops the curriculum standards with the direct input of Texas teachers, parents, and business. Taking something that was developed by very good friends of mine, but done in Washington, D.C., in New York City, Outside of open records, open meetings, the input of Texas parents, business, and teachers, I could never have done individually, nor could the governor. And so when they asked us to do it, we said we don't have the legal authority to do it. And then they tried to coerce us with race to the top. And we said we still don't have the legal authority to do it. And they said, well, you have to do it to get the waiver. We still don't have the legal authority to do it. And by the way, there are three separate federal laws, three on the books today, since the 19, one since the 1970s, one as late as 2001 that say the U.S. Department of Education cannot supervise, manage, support, encourage, review anything relating to state or local curriculum standards. Nothing. There's also another federal law that says the U.S. Department of Education cannot create a national test unless explicitly authorized by other law to do so. So kind of my point is, hey, if, ever, if Congress wants to do this, there's a way to do this. You've got to change the law. You'd either have to change the law in Texas or change the law in Washington. That's the, that's the only way Texas could ever become part of the Common Core. Laura Yeager uh, with TAMSA, or Mothers Against Tongue Testing. <laughs> um, you mentioned briefly, coming back to the issue of the writing EOC. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, what led that fiasco, if it was the cut score being so much higher than the others, or if a rubric would ever be seen as to what actually was, how they were graded? Well, when you set the cut score, you do it based on all the, the information that you have and field test data and past experience as to what happens to students. Because when you take a field test, you're not really motivated. It doesn't matter, right? So you, you normally expect a certain percentage point increase when students have to care about the test. That didn't happen with the writing test, which told us that the instruction in writing was not taking place in the way that our expectations well, you know, we're looking for. So we released the four exemplars of what got you a one, two, three, or four on the scoring thing, just to give people an example of what we were looking for. And I think what you found is that, you know, students' narrative writing skills were okay, their expository writing skills were lacking, and that students can tell you all day long what they did last summer. And this is where, you know, Dave Coleman and I, who's the, essentially the father of the Common Core, agree on this. You know, he, he got panned for a comment he made. You know, if your business manager asks for a detailed report on sales forecast, you know, 
he's not asking you for a compelling story of your childhood. You know, and he got killed for that quote. And I understand getting killed for quotes all the time. But, but he was talking about a level of writing expertise that an employer is looking for. And so I understood exactly where he was coming from. And I think that that's what we were lacking on some of our expository writing skills. Um, because when you transition from the old essential knowledge and skills to college readiness, let me give you an example. The old standard said, student will write a persuasive essay. Cool. Students should be able to write a persuasive essay, right? Well, under the college readiness rubric, student will write a persuasive essay, properly noting sources, and addressing counter-arguments within the scope of their text. That's more college-ready than just writing a persuasive essay. So when you change the standards like that, it takes the system a little more time to understand exactly what you're looking for. Do we have time for one more one question? One more question, and then I'm sprinting to the airport. Oh, Janine, you can call me. You've got, you've got my personal email. <laughs> Todd Webster with the Texas Star Alliance. Um, you touched a little bit, Commissioner, on uh, the alignment of our system when, you know, with college readiness. Could you speak a little bit or touch on you know, the fact that we have essentially we have a four-by-four graduation requirement called the Recommended High School Program, and whether or not you think, first of all, is that um, sufficient, you know, a sufficient graduation plan to assess college, to, to pr- prepare students for college, and whether or not that's the only um, it, it, are there other ways that we could prepare students you know, for, for, for college? Yeah, I, I was a proponent of the 4x4 four four, uh, before the 4x4 four four was cool and before I had kids actually in high school. And then I had kids actually in high school and watched them struggle with their schedules and forego lunch so they could schedule an extra arts class. And so I, you know, back in 2000, you know, I don't remember if it was 3, 4, 5 or one of those years, you know, I, I, I suddenly decided, you know what, it's the rigor I care about. You know, you can get there multiple ways. You know, there can be a, a rigorous career and technology pathway through high school and a rigorous fine arts pathway through high school and a rigorous traditional, you know, college course, not tracking, though. So one of the things, one of the bills I worked on when I worked on Capitol Hill was the, the uh, School to Work Opportunities Act. And I remember being a young man saying, we cannot track these kids. The system can't make the decision for the kids. Only the kid and the parents should be able to make that decision. And I think that's essential in any one of those scenarios, but you can have rigor, and you can have different ways to get there. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all. And thank you so much.